Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me. Do you hear in your hometown and what we have heard that you did in Capernaum? Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Serapeth, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum in a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words and authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are? With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Good morning, everyone. I wonder if you've ever been to a launch of anything. 
you know, a campaign of some kind, uh, maybe launch of a new book, uh, maybe you make something and it's the launch of a new product range or you smashed a bottle over a boat or something like that, or the launch of a mission, even a church. I know, some of you at the launch of this church, for instance, um, a couple of years ago. Well, you know, on a state level, we're coming to the end of a very important campaign now, aren't we? The election campaign. We're only about a week away, and we'll all vote. And at this stage, nobody's got a clue what's going to happen. But all election campaigns have launches, in our country anyway. And that is where the leader of the party, among other things, outlines their vision for the future and why everyone should vote for them. In the last month, the major political parties in our state, South Australia, have all had their launches with various campaign lines or slogans that uh, encapsulate their vision for the future. I'm going to use this contraption in a minute. I wonder if you can tell me what they are. Anybody tell me what the Liberal Party's slogan is? Warp B, there's somebody who's well informed. Uh, yes, come on. No? Sorry, I've given the game away. <laughs> Strong plan for real change. Labour parties, I've just see it, given it to you in a flash, but I haven't seen it much. I had to go to the website to actually see what the slogan was. What is it? You're all Liberal voters, is that right? <laughs> it is... Standing up for South Australia. That's what's on their website when you go there. And then Nick Xenophon. Now you might know the jingle, but I chose not to use the jingle um, in that way. If you go to the website, this is what it says. It's time for real change, real change you can trust. As my screen just decided to go off then. Um, all, you see, are meant to give the thrust of what each party's mission for the future is. Well, today, in that passage that was just read for us, uh, we actually come in Luke's Gospel to something like that. We come uh, to Jesus' mission in Luke 4 and that whole from verse 14 to 44 that was read to us. It's one of the most significant passages in Luke's Gospel, if not the most significant. It's often referred to as programmatic, meaning that it sets up in overview the purpose and program of Jesus' life and ministry as Luke is going to show it through the whole Gospel. <clears throat> so just as Jay Weatherall and Stephen Marshall and Nick Xenophon have sought to do this on a political level this month, uh, so here Luke presents chapter 4 as the time when Jesus launches his mission. Now, if you haven't already done so, I presume you have, you might turn back to Luke chapter 4 in your Bibles. There is an outline of where I'm going uh, in the booklet on page 6, uh, if you want to take notes, but much of the outline will also come up on the screen as we go along. So, in verse uh, 14 and 15, um, as was just read to us, Jesus returns from Galilee in the power of the Spirit, news is spreading about him, and he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone um, praised him. So he'd just come back from being baptised and then he was in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. He had uh, uh, gone through that 
And now we come to this passage. And in common with Matthew and Mark, at this point, uh, Luke notes the beginning of Jesus' public preaching ministry in the synagogues uh, around uh, the area. Now, this... um, Hang on, I'll get this right in a minute. Right, this map, if you can see that, shows you where the action was. Up in this area... Oh, dear, oh, dear. I'm trying to get my pointer up. Aha, up in this area here, you see? Around Galilee. And this is showing where all the synagogues might have been that he was um, travelling in. But now, um, from verse 16, Luke adds something extra to what Matthew and Mark you'll find uh, there. A special event at the synagogue of Nazareth, which of course was Jesus' hometown, his local synagogue um, here. Here in the synagogue of Nazareth, Luke relates this official launch of Jesus' mission. And I've broken it up into three sections, the blueprint of Jesus' mission, the reaction to his mission and the outworking of his mission. But we're going to spend a lot more time on the first one and uh, move more quickly through the second and third because of its importance. So in verse 16, well-known words, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as his custom, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and rolling it he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now Jesus has already been preaching around the, around the place, you know, in the area, in Galilee, so it's no surprise that he's asked to read in his local synagogue and by implication expound what is read. Um, and he's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And I thought just as a matter of interest uh, today, um, now I've got that out, I've read it. Okay, go to the next one. Okay, I didn't know whether you know that we actually have the scroll of Isaiah. It's in one of the museums and uh, it's actually been digitised. So if you go on the web, you can actually pick a part out and blow it up and have a look at it. It's in Hebrew, so you might have a bit of trouble. Um, that sort of way. It's a long scroll. 66 chapters makes a long scroll. But this is one we have that dates back uh, a long way here. And so this is a scroll. This is what it was like. Jesus is pulling it apart, if you like, and he turns to Isaiah 61. A well-known passage in those days and one that was thought to relate to the mission of the coming Messiah, God's servant. And Jesus makes the staggering claim that this passage is all about him. See, we know this because immediately after reading it, he rolls the scroll up and he says in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Wow. In your hearing. Not in the future, not in a little while, not it's all coming. In your hearing. 
Note the emphasis on me in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom. So when Jesus says, in your hearing, that is big stuff. And the claim is obvious. He's not simply proclaiming that the message of good news is going to happen. He's claiming in his own person this passage is fulfilled. What follows then is the blueprint of Jesus' mission as God intended, as God has its intended fulfilment of Isaiah 61. What we have here is first of all, I think, a campaign, a campaign theme, a slogan, if you like, for Jesus' mission, followed by three aspects of its nature. And just like our political parties that have theme lines on their websites, some of the vision, if Jesus was here today, had a website, and we went to his website, I think this is what it would read. Proclaiming good news to the poor. But what's incredibly important here is if we're to understand the thrust of Jesus' mission is to understand what is meant in Luke by this term poor. Because it's a lot broader, a lot different than what we might expect. Some in the history of the church have sought to simply align what Luke says here with Matthew's poor in spirit and refer simply to the spiritually poor. Others, quite correctly, have noted Luke's emphasis here on the literal poor in his gospel and destitute, but have seen the major thrust of these words in terms of some sort of social justice. It was out of this sort of thinking that the uh, movement that you might know of known as liberation theology, it's very big in the 60s and 70s, was born in Latin America, where salvation was seen in purely in terms of political revolution and social justice. Both of these views, however, are too one-sided and ignore the culture of the times. As Joel Green, one of the major commentators on Luke, um, explains, in that culture, one's status in a community was not so much a function of economic realities, but it depended on a number of elements, including education, gender, family heritage, religious purity, vocation, economics and so on. The poor were defined not merely in subjective spiritual and personal economic terms, but in the holistic sense of those who for any number of socio-religious reasons were relegated to positions outside the boundaries of God's people. By directing his good news to these people, Jesus indicates his refusal to recognise those socially determined boundaries, asserting instead that even these outsiders are the objects of divine grace. Others may regard such people as beyond the pale, but God has opened a way for them to belong to his family. So the poor then are, in Luke, the socially poor. They're the outsiders. Jesus has especially come with good news for them. Now four statements follow and they describe the nature of this good news. Two refer to freedom 
and the middle one, or the second one, to sight and then one to favour. The good news is, first of all, good news of freedom from bondage. Now this combines, I've combined here the first and the third statements, freedom for the prisoners and the setting free of the oppressed. They're both some form of bondage. But what sort of freedom are we talking about? Well, it would be easy to assume, as liberation theology did, some sort of political meaning. That it referred to the literal release of prisoners from jail and the release of God's people from the oppression of their Roman rulers, which of course is what many thought the Messiah would do. But that cannot possibly be the case since Jesus accomplished neither in his own life or after his resurrection in the life of the church. In fact, one of Jesus' greatest followers, the Apostle Paul, as we know, wrote many of his letters from prison. Certainly wasn't experiencing freedom as a prisoner in that sense. Now, Jesus is referring to a more fundamental bondage, a far greater human oppression, the bondage to sin and the ensuing and its ensuing guilt before God. You see, the interesting thing here is the word translated freedom literally means release, all kinds of release and therefore in different contexts it's translated differently. Here in reference to oppression and prison, it means freedom. But in other contexts, it means something else. So, for example, when you come to sins, you will see um, the same word is translated forgiveness. It's exactly the same word, freedom, forgiveness. Because there we're talking about release from the guilt of sin. We'll see the first example of this next week in the, in the next chapter, uh, when Jesus um, declares release from the forgiveness of sins for a paralysed man who'd been lowered down uh, through the roof of a place uh, that he was speaking. But the Song of Zechariah, like we've already seen the past couple of weeks, in chapter 1, verse 77, has already declared the nature of God's redemption and salvation to be the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus declares after his death and resurrection at the end of uh, Luke chapter 24 verse 47 he says the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. So this freedom friends is primarily refers to freedom from the guilt of sin. Now why then, if that's true why then is the word, are these words directed towards prisoners or the oppressed. Doesn't the rest of the New Testament make clear that forgiveness is available to all? Indeed it does. And I think in Luke, as we read through Luke, the reason for this is twofold. First, it becomes clear as we go through Luke that such forgiveness will only come to those who know they need it. Jesus speaks in the very next chapter of those who know they need a doctor. Later, he says he came to those who knew they were lost. And it is the poor, friends, the outsiders, the despised, the rejected, the looked down upon, the diseased, etc., the suffering, 
that this becomes good news too. These are the people who often realise they need a doctor. The self-righteous Pharisees think they already are good enough. The modern secularist doesn't even believe God exists, let alone think they're in need of forgiveness before him. The great mass of ordinary people in our society see themselves as good people compared to the bad people, the prisoners, the terrorists, etc. Now that may be true, humanly speaking, but against the holiness of God, it's just a nonsense. It's just a total nonsense. For Luke, it is the outsiders, the poor, who are most likely to be open to the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But there's a second reason, I think, why Jesus puts it this way, why Luke uh, puts this incident here and makes it special. Because Luke is not just about spiritual realities. Luke is about human social inclusion. Many people have recognised the great reversal theme that happens when you read Luke's Gospel. The haves and the have-nots. We already see this early in Mary's song. In chapter 1, verse 52, when she says, He, referring to God, has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Repairing the relationship with God has real social consequences in human life. Outsiders become insiders. They are included as members of God's people. That is, my friends, what the church is all about. The human social inclusion of those who realise they need a doctor. They need the forgiveness of sins. They need to repair that relationship with God. That's what's so fantastic about the church. Inclusion of a bunch of misfits. Sorry about that. Whom God has forgiven and bonded together by his spirit to love, accept and care for each other. Many years ago on a retreat, it was before I even came to Adelaide, I rubbed shoulders with a man who was a murderer. He had murdered his wife and spent a long time in prison as a result. During that time he'd heard the gospel through a prison ministry that came and he responded wholeheartedly. He served the rest of his time, a long time, from memory it was something like about 17 years and he'd been out of prison for a number of years when I met him. He'd married again later in life and was part of a thriving church fellowship. He was one of the most joyful and committed Christians I'd ever met. Good news to prisoners. Good news of forgiveness of sins that restores real human life and leads once again to social inclusion rather than rejection as we become members of his people. Well, in a similar fashion, the good news that Jesus announces is also good news of recovery of sight. 
No doubt Jesus did recover the sight of some blind people. In fact, Luke records later on in chapter 18 the restoration of sight of a blind beggar. But this literal recovery of sight was clearly not Jesus' main thrust. In fact, at the end of this chapter, after healing many people, we find Jesus moving on to another place. Even though the people wanted him to stay, for obvious reasons, um, he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. There is a more fundamental recovery of sight, friends. The sight to see salvation in Jesus. Already in chapter 1, verse 30, there's a lot in chapter 1, after Jesus is presented as a boy at the temple, according to the law, Simeon, upon seeing Jesus, declares, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. And nothing had happened yet, he was only a boy. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Jesus not only brings literal recovery of sight to the blind people, but more fundamentally the sight to see God's eternal salvation in him. Today, as in Jesus' day, there are so many people who think they see. Maybe they rely on a confidence in modern technology or science or human ingenuity or the you-can-do-anything-you-like if you put your mind to it mentality but they're really blind. Deeply blind. Blind to their peril before a holy God. Blind to the darkness that lies within their own soul. It's only Jesus who can truly recover such blindness. Well, last of the good news, we see good news of the favour of the Lord. The year of the Lord's favour is just a way of referring to not any particular year but the era of God's salvation. It is language that's reminiscent of the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. You could read in Leviticus 25 where every 50 years slaves were set free, all debts were cancelled and the land lay uncultivated as both man and beast rested and rejoiced in the Lord. Jesus saw himself as coming with a jubilee, good news to troubled people, offering forgiveness of sins, release from the bonds of Satan, both physically and emotionally. He comes as the herald and the inaugurator of a spiritual jubilee, offering forgiveness and deliverance. If you're a visitor here today or someone's still trying to work out what you think about Jesus, this proclamation and invitation is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus announced it. Read the Gospel of Luke through. See how it was fulfilled. Talk to someone, me, Mike, any one of the members here at God's people, but don't miss out on this good news of God's forgiveness and restoration, which we will see in a moment the people of Nazareth did. 
Now, I've spent a long time on the blueprint of Jesus' mission here because everything that follows in Luke's Gospel depends on a proper understanding of it. But we'll move along much more quickly through the rest of the chapter. From the blueprint of Jesus' mission, we then come to the reaction to his mission. It begins in verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son they asked? And Jesus said, surely you'll quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in, in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Initially, you see, the people are amazed at his words. They react with wonder at his gracious words. They were impressed, all spoke well of him. Twice more in this chapter... Luke notes uh, a similar action. A bit further down in verse 31, um, he taught the people in Capernaum. They were amazed at his teaching because of his authority. And then again in verse 36, all people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are with authority and power he gives orders, etc. So here we go, wonder at his gracious words. But there were still some elements of scepticism. So bold was his claim. After all, wasn't this man the son of Joseph? I mean, we know him. This is his hometown. We've watched him grow up. He's a carpenter. If he's the Messiah, let's see him do here in his hometown things we've heard him do elsewhere around the place. All this is what Jesus means when he says in verse 23, surely you'll quote me this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what you've heard that you did in Capernaum. But Jesus will have none of this self-centred parochial view of God's good news. The good news is for the nations. And hence the initial wonder at Jesus' gracious words soon turns into... Um, rejection of its gracious scope. You see, Jesus points out to the crowd the stories of God's grace outside of Israel in the time of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. You can look at 1 Kings 17, how Elijah, uh, because the message of the prophet was being rejected by the people of Israel, had fled his country um, and came to Zarephath in Phoenicia just to sort of... uh, Go back to the map. We're we're up here. There's Zarephath, Phoenicia, way outside of any Israelite uh, boundary. It was a time, three and a half year, time of severe famine. But what uh, Elijah did was miraculously provide daily food for 
a poor widow in Zarephath. In 2 Kings 5, you can find the story of Elisha. It tells how Elisha healed of leprosy a commander of the army of Aram, which was sort of all that side, north and that side. It's not on there, but... Um, and now uh, would be known in Jesus' time as Syria through washing in the River Jordan. You see, Jesus uses these incidences as evidence that this good news and freedom and favour was destined for the nations and could not be restricted to Israel. They served both as a criticism of the faithlessness of Israel, which was back then and is there now in the people of Nazareth, and yet the gracious scope of God's good news that would soon be a universal invitation to all the nations. A universal invitation, of course, friends, of which we are the beneficiaries, are we not? The people in Nazareth, however, are not pleased and they seek to kill him. But this time, he, his time for dying on the cross has not yet come and he simply walks through them, though we're not told how. It seems to me, friends, reactions have not changed since then. There are plenty of people who still express wonder at the words and life of Jesus. People who recognise Jesus' great moral teaching. His compassion and love seem as some sort of example. People seem as someone special. Maybe even some people seem as God's son. Of course because of what he seemed to be able to do. But that's as far as it goes. And there are plenty of people, religious and non-religious, who of course reject uh, the good news he proclaims. And that's often a result of human pride or privilege or a misplaced self-confidence. There is of course an appropriate response, we just haven't come to it yet, that awaits next week with the calling of the first disciples. For now, we move to the third and final element of the launch of Jesus' mission and that is the outworking of his mission. Verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, in pure spirit he cried out at the top of his voice, Go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words are these? With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding areas. What will this preaching of the kingdom and proclaiming of God's favour look like in practice for Jesus? Of course, this is revealed throughout the gospel. But here, in the rest of this chapter, we see its initial burst. And I've just summed it up as a combination of teaching and miracles. Now, while we do not yet get large slabs of Jesus' teaching at this point, Um, that is to come, one cannot miss the clear emphasis on the priority of Jesus' teaching in his mission. Go back to verse 15. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And then verse 31, then he went 
down to Galilee town. Every Sabbath he taught the people. They're amazed at his teaching. And finally then, right near the end of the chapter, where Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. He must teach and preach the good news to all. Teaching, instructing, was absolutely primary. And we do well to reflect upon why that was the case. Nevertheless, wherever he went, along with Jesus, went his ministry of performing miracles. So I just read of one incident there where Jesus heals a demon-possessed man in verses 33 to 35 by casting it out. A bit later in verse 38 we see the healing of Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked her, rebuked it and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. And then just a general one. At sunset the people brought to Jesus all kinds of various sickness and laying hands on them, he healed them. I don't think these incidents are actually chosen at random. Each reflects something of the breaking in of the rule of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom God brings. Here we see the breaking of Satan's power, the reversal of the effects of the fall, directly casting out demons and indirectly in healing and sickness and disease. In other words, what Jesus' miracles do is that they function to authenticate who he is and what he teaches. The two are somewhat connected in verse 36. He's just uh, healed somebody and all the people are amazed and they say, what words are these? With authority and power he gives words to the impure spirits and they come out. His, His teaching is authenticated by what he does, by his miracles. He's teaching that he is the Messiah. His miracles of compassion, of healing and of power over evil authenticate and demonstrate who he is, the promised Messiah who would come and bring the good news of the kingdom. To put it another way really, and a way in which we can see its application to us, for Jesus' disciples, Jesus teaching his word was demonstrated in his deeds. The importance for the church to continue the priority of the teaching of the word, I think, cannot be underestimated. One writer states, one of the fundamental biblical assumptions is that human cultures distort reality. Our minds need reshaping and renewing so that our feelings, greatly emphasised today, and reactions will be more like what God desires. We get so many messages thrown at us today and human nature distorts them. Churches may be warm and friendly. Some may have great manifestations of power. But if they have no one committed to the faithful teaching of the word of God, they really are like a ship without a rudder floating around in a cultural sea arising from human sin and pride. Friends, that's the primary reason we gather. One of the primary reasons we gather week by week 
now and during the week around the Word of God. To hear it taught. To think like God does. And to be changed into the image of his Son. And that's the primary reason we seek to share Jesus' teaching with others, both as individuals and as the community. But just as Jesus' miracles authenticated and demonstrated the truth of his message and his person, so we gather in Jesus' name and point people to him and the good news he proclaimed. We demonstrate the truth of that word through our deeds of love and compassion to one another and to anyone who crosses our path. Word demonstrated indeed. Well, so here's the campaign launch and what a launch it really is if you reflect and dwell on it. Jesus not only announces the good news of the kingdom, he is the good news of the kingdom. The one who would secure forgiveness for the socially poor through his death on the cross as we've celebrated here today at communion and bring outsiders in human terms back into the security and care of God's family. He performed miracles because of who he was and God's compassion for people. The church is really just an extension of Jesus' mission to a broken and corrupt world. We proclaim the good news and point to him. We give careful attention to Jesus' instruction and we seek to reach out in love as people who belong to the God of all compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great passage this is today for us to reflect on. How wonderful it is to reflect on the sending of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and all he came to do. We thank you for these words in Luke that help us to see uh, the real good news that he brought to the world and that we have been able to experience through the forgiveness of sins and through your power of the Holy Spirit to change our lives and bring us together as a church. Heavenly Father, help us to be devoted to your word, not only in our own lives, but devoted to seeking to share it as we have opportunity. But Lord, we pray these may not be hollow words. We pray that the word that we share and the word we learn may be backed up and demonstrated in the love and deeds of love that you have for all people, that you may give us that power also to demonstrate that to others. And we ask it, Lord, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.